during the Conservative government's tenure, a lot of that holistic care has been cut away. And we're really giving a bare bones service to a lot of patients now. Some people aren't even able to access what they need because of the waiting lists. And I think that fall from this sort of positive and optimistic um, outlook in 2010 to how we are today, it's just been the most extraordinary fall from grace. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Well, I'd like to start, if I may, by asking you a bit about your own journey. You know, what what brought you into medicine in the first place? If you could sort of just tell our listeners a bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, it's a long time ago now. I think when you're back at school, you're desperately trying to figure out what would be best for your future, aren't you? And I really liked science. I really liked caring for people. Um, and I started um, working in my spare time as a healthcare assistant when I was in sixth form Um I really liked the direct contact with people um, and being a doctor just seemed like the best of both of those two different things, you know, people contact mm. and also science. And so I suppose that's what drew me to it. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a different thing imagining what it would be like to work as a doctor and then actually working as a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think I was fully aware of... Um, you know, what politicians have been doing to the healthcare system or the difficulties that a lot of people have in our society until I was working frontline in the NHS, to be honest. And actually, I think quite a lot of people out there might not know how many people are struggling. You know, if you're not confronted with people who don't have enough money or are struggling with mental health problems or any of the difficulties in our society, if you live quite a sheltered life, it can be difficult to sort of appreciate how difficult people are finding it. So I think NHS staff have got a quite a unique insight into, you know, a lot of things going on in society because you're confronted with it every single day. So I learned a lot becoming a doctor, I think far beyond medicine. I think I learned a lot about humans and, you know, what worries humans, what it means to be a human. Um, sorry, that didn't really answer your question, did it? But um... Well, no, that's really interesting about like just... Mm seeing all walks of life and kind of yeah. and, you know I guess you need a level of empathy and compassion when you work in in, a, in the health service but having to like take on a lot of emotion when you're in there was that something that you were obviously you say it maybe wasn't something that you were kind of aware of going in that you would have that I guess not baggage isn't the right word but yeah. that additional level of like kind of um you having to work out your own mental health because you're taking on a lot of people's other things that they've got going on well it's I think it's interesting, actually, because when you think about why someone would, for example, apply for medical school, you're kind of told, oh, you have to get the grades and you have to study for, you know, your biology exams or chemistry or whatever. It's all very academic. And even the application process to medical school, I mean, it's probably changed a little bit since I went, but um, it's all very much about sort of jumping through hoops and being academically successful and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then when you become a doctor, you realise that that's the starting point you've got to know how to look after someone the treatment and the science the anatomy and all that sort of thing but really if you're going to be a good doctor or a nurse or any healthcare professional it goes far beyond the science because you have to be able to appreciate someone's life and what matters to them and their quality of life and all those types of things and something that's really 
depressing, I think, about in the UK at the moment is I qualified as a doctor in 2010 and the healthcare system was extraordinary at the time. We had these fantastic multidisciplinary teams where the UK was really at the forefront of figuring out holistic medicine and how to really care for someone properly. Um, and for example, in psychiatry, which is the area that I specialised in, um, you know, we had all of these fantastic allied healthcare professionals who would help with psychology, play therapy, art therapy, um, contributing in ways to people's recovery, which are not just about giving drugs or, you know, diagnosing things, but sort of really surrounding a person, making sure they get better. And over the last 13 years or so, during the Conservative government's tenure, a lot of that holistic care has been cut away. And we're really giving a bare bones service to a lot of patients now. Some people aren't even able to access what they need because of the waiting lists. And I think that fall from this sort of positive and optimistic um, outlook in 2010 to how we are today, it's just been the most extraordinary fall from grace. And it's quite astonishing and horrifying, I think, to a lot of people who appreciated how things were back then, both the patients, you know, you hear, I talk to patients a lot every single day, they talk about their own experiences and and that things really aren't good enough um and they're not that you know it's completely okay to say that about the nhs we we love the nhs in principle but the nhs right now is not fulfilling what people need um but also for staff it's heartbreaking because if you've trained within a system which can deliver a certain level of care and you feel responsible to deliver that care and then the resources are cut away and you cannot provide that anymore there's a sort of moral quandary that people go through and I think some staff it gets so stressful that they leave because they cannot tolerate working within a system mm. where they're not delivering what is necessary other people would like to leave because it's so enormously stressful and yet they find themselves staying because they can't bear to leave their patients um I heard last week about a member of staff who's been very badly treated and had put off um their own health needs they need to have an operation they put it off because the patient need is so high right now um and you know that that might seem really extraordinary for someone who doesn't work in the healthcare profession but I can understand that you know I think there's probably times when any healthcare professional has thought I don't feel very well today but I can't not go to work because we're short-staffed and you know these terrible things and, I, and so I think politicians decisions have these like ripple effects outwards um, and so many millions of people in the UK are now feeling the effects of political decisions. And it's not what the public want, I think. Um, I think if the public had decided they no longer cared about the NHS, they wanted it to be a different way, there would be no point doing any of the work that every doctor does or writing books or any of this stuff. But most of the public do want a decent public healthcare system and they really believe in it and they prefer to do that than to pay privately um, and pay a little bit less tax. They like, the, you know, they like the idea of the NHS, the premise and what it represents. And so I think that's why it's worth fighting for, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm just thinking from my own experiences of using the NHS, and you obviously have as well, Giles, mm. we've both had, you know, quite big procedures that would probably have cost a ridiculous amount of money private but other people that I hear of using the NHS as well, and I see it on social media and stuff like that, it's always a resounding sort of 
feeling of oh we are so lucky to have the NHS we're so lucky you know oh thank you to the NHS thank you you know the staff are amazing it's lots of singing the NHS praises for how how well people are coping in such a terrible you know with terrible circumstances I think that there is a feeling of sort of empathy and sympathy towards everybody that's involved in the NHS for that reason for every everything that you just said yeah so yeah it's definitely it definitely seems to be a feeling of like you know you've got this like we really really want this to work but it's just so so hard it's really hard and there's a lot of rhetoric in some of the newspapers as well that is suggesting that that's not the case you know saying that the public have fallen out of love with the service and that they don't value it anymore or sort of mocking people for religiously supporting the NHS but I don't think any of that's true. First of all, I don't think you can kind of religiously support a public service. I think that it's a real heartfelt sort of yeah. feeling about something that is a public service, not a religion. But um, but I think you're right. I, I don't think the public have fallen out of love with the NHS. They're certainly frustrated and not being able to get what they need. And I think that's legitimate and people should be speaking up about it. But that's not um, people berating the staff. That's that's people feeling angry that the system hasn't been given the funding that it needs and that sort of stuff. Um, I think what's really depressing is knowing how many years people have had to kind of come out and say like, we support the NHS, we support the staff and the staff going through an awful thing. Um, sometimes online I get versus from trolls, but I get people saying like, oh, well, it feels like everyone to the NHS is suffering. You've been moaning on about this for ages. And it's true because because the NHS has been sort of deteriorating for many years now because of the actions of politicians and um, it's not going to turn around until people, I think, are extremely vocal about what they want to happen and that they want the service to be rebuilt. Um, Hopefully that will happen beyond the next election, but we'll see. Well, you know how I really love my morning coffees. I go down to Backers in the morning, I get my coffee to maintain my energies throughout the day. Well, I do love a coffee in the morning, but sometimes it doesn't quite hit the spot and too much caffeine, as you know, is not good. So I've discovered these magic mind shots. I've started to incorporate these into my daily routine. Uh, And the best thing is they taste amazing. And more importantly, they help me boost my productivity and my focus. Oh, yeah, I've heard about these. These contain something called nootropics, which is something that I actually recently heard all about uh, when we interviewed our nutritionist. They're supposed to be amazing for attention and concentration and cognition and really good for your mental health as well. So you end up getting more done and you're more productive in less time. Yeah. And you know what's great also about these? So unlike heavy caffeine, I can take these magic minds even in the afternoon and I have no worries about getting off to sleep in the evening or tossing and turning. Mm, and have you been noticing any difference in the way you've been feeling in terms of stress and anxiety? Yeah, oh, it's so much better. They've got this thing in it called L-theanine and it naturally reduces your stress levels. Mm, funnily enough, I've heard about L-theanine because I had a friend that used to take it and it was supposed to be really, really good for anxiety and I've never found it anywhere in shops. I'm probably not looking hard enough, but I've but I've looked in sort of all the health food shops and I've never been able to find it. So actually, that's really cool that they have that in these shots as well. So if you're like me and you're trying to perform your best every day, you've got to give Magic Mind a try. 
Seriously, it is a total game changer. I am going to give Magic Mind a try. It sounds amazing. And guess what? The Magic Mind team have hooked us up with an incredible offer for our listeners. You can get up to 56% off your first subscriptions in the next 10 days and 20% off a one-time purchase. Just head over to magicmind.com forward slash unquestionable and redeem the discount with the code unquestionable20. But remember, that 56% discount only lasts for the next 10 days, so don't miss out. Yeah, believe me, this offer is way too good to pass up. Try Magic Mind and feel the difference yourself. So I was going to say, like, obviously you said you went in at 20, in 2010 and, and you felt like at that point the service was running well. There was lots yeah. of more investment in it. When, when did you start to feel like there was a systemic issue with sort of this kind of almost you know it sounds overall but this sort of destruction um of the nhs when well, did you start to see those sort of beginning germination of like policy changing yeah so so yeah i went in at 2010 and when you're a junior doctor you move around lots of different specialties initially to figure out well first of all to learn lots of different things because you need to have a grounding in lots of different areas of medicine and then you tend to specialize after a couple of years. In my first couple of years, um, one of my favorite jobs was in A&E. And at that point, that was in 2012, we, I was actually working in one of the hospitals that was close to um, the London Olympics. And so we we had, you know, there was a lot of kind of association with that. It was a really exciting time to be working in the NHS and feel, feel part of like our country and everything that the NHS represented. and. Um, everyone was really proud. And I remember the four-hour target, this is, there's a target in A&E, in case anybody who's listening isn't aware, there's a an aim to treat, um, diagnose, and either admit someone to hospital or discharge them home within a four-hour wait when they arrive at NHS A&E. And to be doing that well, NHS hospitals are supposed to be doing that for 95% of their patients. And when I was working in A&E, it was pretty close to that, I think, if you knew that your patient was going to have to wait more than four hours, that was a big deal in the department. You know, it would be a source of stress and shame and you would be working your socks off to get that patient out of the department, either into the hospital or going home within that four hours. I mean, it was just, the place was charged with this sort of positive energy of treating people quickly and treating them amazingly well. And now the number of people who are treated within four hours, I mean, it's absolutely gone off a cliff. Um, at one point, I think it went down into sort of 50, 50 something percent rate. I mean, that's terrible. It's it's awful what has happened. That's now. Mm. As I was mm. moving around different places, I started specializing in psychiatry. And around 2015, 2016, there were lots of cuts um, which had been made, austerity cuts, and it started to feel felt within the system. You'd go to turn up on call, for example, on night shift, and you'd be told there's no psychiatric acute, acute inpatient beds in the whole of England today. You know, there'd be a bed manager sort of stressing out because they'd say, okay, when you assess person in A&E, it's probably gonna be a long wait. We're having to call around other hospitals, work out what the situation is. We need to work out if there will be private hospital beds that a patient could potentially be transferred to. So there's this level of stress um, permeating the service. And in your inpatient ward job, there'd be this constant flurry of activity to try and get people out of hospital as soon as you possibly could in order to make way for the next patient. And even back then, there'd be times that you'd be thinking, 
be good if this person could stay a little bit longer. They're not, you know, maybe just to kind of really ease them back into being at home and get used to their treatment regime. But quite often people would be pushed out before they were quite ready because you were just so desperate to get the bed available again for the next patient to come in. And so even back then, um, it felt like things weren't as they should be. We lost some key members of staff. And when someone would, for example, leave their job or retire, they weren't always replacing them with new members of staff. So, I mean, that's going back seven or eight years now. And doctors, I think certainly the ones of my age and older, because we had known what it had been like before, Mm. we felt quite aggrieved about this because if you can see that a system that was working really well is getting cut away and you know that you're not doing as good a job as you used to do it can feel really awful and so that's when I started getting involved in NHS campaigning there were certainly a lot of people doing it before I did but um, that's when I I started getting involved yeah so well tell us a bit about every doctor then because how did that come about what are the origins of that and I mean I, I guess it's come out of this moment of realization for you and wanting to be more involved in campaigning yeah so we're obviously going through doctor strikes at the moment but the previous bout of strikes were junior doctor strikes which happened in 2015 2016 and we were striking back then for some of the same reasons quite honestly because the pay had been squeezed and jeremy hunt was trying to put a new contract on junior doctors in england which would have seen us working more um, more more hours and it looked like it was going to be for less money um, and the argument he was using to try and push this through made it look like if a patient was admitted over the weekend in the NHS that they were not going to receive treatment which was as good as during the week and his kind of the insinuation was that it was because doctors weren't working enough at in you know outside of the sort of normal office hours um, there was a lot of pushback to that because it wasn't really backed up with evidence. Um, and we felt pretty upset about it because we were working a lot of hours, a lot of night shifts, a lot of really long shifts, all of that stuff already. Um, and I think it made a lot of junior doctors, myself included, kind of look at the rhetoric written about the NHS in the papers and sort of look at it in a different way. This might sound really naive because I know probably a lot of your nis- listeners are very politically aware, Giles, but Doctors, if certainly if you've gone straight from school to medical school and then you've started working a hospital job, you're quite rational and fact-based in how you read things. And there was certainly, I, I certainly had the assumption that the stuff that's printed in the news is printed as straight fact. I mean, mm-hmm. looking at what the news is like now, that seems absolutely ludicrous. But when that was all going on and our strikes were going on, we could see how the situation was becoming politicised and the way that we were being spoken about didn't bear resemblance to our own reality. And I think for a lot of us, that was really shocking. Um, I mean, you could describe it as privilege, probably. We're probably quite privileged that up until that point, I think a lot of us had lived a life where if you worked hard, you get rewarded facts mattered expertise mattered and so it felt like that had all gone out the window and for a lot of us I think that was a turning point where we really became quite skeptical about the um about the intentions of politicians there was a kind of feeling I think in the early 2010s that the cutbacks and the austerity measures like maybe it was for the best maybe these politicians did know better than us maybe they were just going to be making efficiencies And over time, it just became apparent that that wasn't the case. It was making things worse and not better. 
Anyway, so because of all of that, a lot of organizing was going online um, in the form of kind of Facebook groups, Facebook pages, all about Facebook about then. <laughs> with lots of doctors. And um, I became involved in all of that. And at some point, because we were all junior doctors talking to one another, I realized that if we could have a Facebook group with doctors from all different ages and backgrounds and specialties, we'd probably have more of an impact on speaking up about things. Um, we'd also realized during the junior doctor dispute that the public did tend to trust doctors. And so the opportunities we did have to speak up in the media were quite powerful because if the public was confronted with what a junior doctor was saying and what a politician was saying, quite frequently we would get the impression that we were being believed by the public. And so I thought if there could be a place where we could congregate and campaign together, find ways of organising and speaking up, that it would probably be quite powerful. And so we we set up this Facebook forum. There was initially no real plan for every doctor. It was kind of very organically came about. But eventually, um, in early 2019, we set this thing up. And the reason for it was because we thought that if we had a team working on this who could do it as their full job, would be more effective because doctors work loads and loads of hours. And I was finding that trying to manage a full-time job and campaign was too difficult because people would get involved with loads and loads of energy and then the energy would peter out because they just had too much else on. So we set up Every Doctor as a non-profit and we have a membership of doctors. People started joining because they could see us speaking up in the news and running campaigns, but it started very slowly. Um, and then the pandemic hit and it was the most horrifying thing, obviously, for so many people. But the forum that we had built became this sort of catalyst point for a lot of discussion amongst doctors in the early days, sharing information as it was coming out from China and Italy, where, you know, they'd already been hit very hard by the virus. And every doctor suddenly grew in our membership numbers because we realized very early on that workers were at risk. Um, they weren't being protected properly with PPE. A lot of places didn't have enough PPE or didn't have the right PPE. But not just that, there were other things like locum staff in the NHS. Some of them didn't have a death in service benefit provided. So if they died on the job where they had probably caught COVID, their families wouldn't be provided with any kind of you know, money as a compensation. I mean, it's a horrible thing to talk about, but that was what was on people's minds. So lots of locum staff were being given any sick pay if they caught the virus again, probably at work because they couldn't lock down. If they got sick, they, would, um, they wouldn't have any compensations. So there was things like that that we realized we had to speak up about. And we constructed a campaign that was called Protect NHS Workers. We involved over 100 MPs that came on board and we lobbied for a few changes during that time. And every doctor just kind of took off. So we started doing weekly parliamentary briefings, um, talking to MPs about what was actually going on on the front line of the NHS. It sounds absolutely ludicrous, but a lot of MPs were struggling to get up-to-date information about what was actually happening in NHS hospitals because the government themselves had access to a lot of experts and a lot of bodies who were feeding information to them but the sense we had was that a lot of MPs weren't accessing that same information. And so they were struggling to speak up about things. So we tried to provide that kind of conduit. So every week we would bring frontline doctors in contact with um, 
lots of MPs. And then we would work together on, for example, drafting letters to ministers or speaking up in prime minister's questions, that sort of stuff. And it, yeah, it's really grown from there. So we took the government to court about the PPE deals um, in 2021. And then the public started joining Every Doctor, which was incredible. And I guess that's the most extraordinary thing. We're growing quite fast now because we've started speaking up a lot about privatisation. It's a real key thing for us um, because privatisation underpins all of the reasons why these politicians are destroying the public healthcare system. And what we've learned, I guess, is that while we might have been a bit naive about politicians' intentions, or certainly I was, there's lots of members of the public who've been paying attention to all of this for a really long time. Mm -hmm. As soon as we were able to say to the public, like, we're a group of doctors and we're really opposed to this, will you come on board? We've been amazed, but loads of people have. And some of those people are extraordinary. I was in a meeting last week with some campaigners who've been... um, working locally against um, attempts to kind of close NHS facilities for a really long time. And some of these people are quite elderly and they were energetic, motivated, incredibly knowledgeable about what was going on. And we're now hoping to sort of share what they've been doing with people around the country so that hopefully similar groups could be set up because, you know, online, I think, some people end up getting a platform and speaking to loads and loads of people, but it can be easy to forget there's people all over the country who've been pushing back against all of this for such a long time. So we're hoping to connect everybody. I suppose that's how we see our role now, connecting everybody who wants to oppose what's happening and providing a platform for people to speak up together. Um, As soon as you start talking to people about the NHS and getting their stories and hearing what they've got to say, well, certainly what I've found is that there is a lot of frustration, but beyond the frustration, people want to solve the problems. They want to get us back to where we were in 2010 or before 2010. It's um, People don't want the NHS to be destroyed. Um, and that's an amazing thing. Like there's so much bad, but the thing that's fantastic is that there's a lot of hope as well. I think as you have more and more and more people speaking up about this, you recognise the politicians are probably not going to manage to do away with the NHS because the strength of feeling is so opposed to them doing that. And it's just about organising that effort, I think. That's how we see our role, I suppose. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, to me, the NHS and having access to free healthcare is one of the things that makes living in England so like like so positive because we haven't exactly got the weather (laughs) but you know when I think about like moving to another country I always say yeah but you know it's safe you know there's free healthcare the education systems okay but it feels like actually the NHS and the education system and many other areas as well are kind of suffering and if if you know healthcare was privatized there would be an increase in homelessness, I'm sure. And, you know, people that can't afford to get healthcare would be suffering unnecessarily. It just, it would feel like the country would just go to shit. (laughs) So it's so important for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, if you compare it with what happens in America and so many people, I mean, it's something like over half a million families every single year go bankrupt because of medical problems or the debt associated with medical problems. And if you think about just normal families having that hanging over them, you know, that one bad diagnosis, one accident could essentially topple you as a family into bankruptcy is terrifying. 
And and as a principle as well, like I know, you know, people always bang on about the ideology of the NHS, but as a society, I think the ideology that we do care for every single person in their hour of need, I think that's incredibly powerful. And the thing that's interesting with politicians at the moment, I think, is that, you know, there'd be a lot of people when the NHS was formed who didn't want it to form, probably people who have a similar mindset to our politicians at the moment. And yet it did form and it existed. And now the population knows what that's like. Mm. You know, you can't take that away from people. They're not going to forget it. So while people in America might not, they've never experienced the NHS. They don't know what it's like, right? So some people wouldn't necessarily see the value in it. The people in the UK do know the value. And so they're not going to have it taken from them. Mm, yeah no it's so so true and having spent time in other countries as well I think when you when you think about the NHS crisis you me personally I immediately think of the doctors and the nurses and all the staff and how it affects them because you hear about you know people rushing around and overworked and underpaid and not enough beds and stuff but you don't actually think about how it affects every single person in this country it does yeah well, it's our backdrop. It will say backdrop. It's a safety net for everybody, right? You you know that if something goes wrong, that you'll receive care and you won't have to pay for it, you know? And it doesn't matter who you are. And it's something that I really liked, actually. When I started working in psychiatry, um, a lot of the people that I was looking after, because I was working in North London, East London, in a city, in a city area with lots of social deprivation in some of the places I was working, the knowledge that you would just look after the next person in the queue who was in front of you, and it didn't matter who that person was, and no matter how much they'd previously accessed healthcare and how much money they had or anything, you would just look after the next person in the queue. That was extraordinary. You know, you couldn't pay your way to the front of the queue. And a lot of people who have psychiatric problems, certainly the ones that are severe and enduring and might affect someone's life in a significant way. They're people who've been pushed to the fringes of society. So people might be homeless or they might have unstable housing. They might have lost their support network. They might not be able to work. And you as a doctor in the NHS would treat this person with the same respect and kindness and care that you would give anybody. And I think that's something really special and we shouldn't lose that. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say, you know, you can't buy your way to the front of the queue, I mean, the, the good thing is in this country is that there is still private healthcare. You can go private if you want, you know, if you've got the money and you don't want to wait or, you you know, you want more immediate care or whatever. There is that option too. You know, it's it's good that we have we have both, I think. But yeah, yeah I think but the option has that. always been there. And I, some of the conversations that were coming up last winter, because What's happening at the moment is as the waiting lists get longer and longer and more people are struggling to get what they need with the NHS, people are being pushed into the private healthcare sector. And I had a few interviews back in January where our journalists were sort of posing these questions at me like, oh, well, do you think people should feel guilty for turning to private healthcare? And of course they shouldn't feel guilty. If it's a personal choice to, to go private, then that's absolutely fine. People can spend their money however they want. But they shouldn't be having to do it because they cannot access what they need in the public healthcare system, which they've already paid for through the taxes. You know, it's, it's nonsense. And it's it's a tricky one as well, because the private healthcare industry in the UK has very little in the way of emergency services. So, for example, if you went and paid for an operation privately and something went wrong and you needed emergency care, 
you would probably end up going in an ambulance to an NHS hospital and the public healthcare system would pick up the bill and you'd end up using resources in a an NHS hospital. And the private healthcare sector in the UK has sort of benefited from that for a long time. It's a sort of hidden cost, um, which they don't have to bear. Mm-hmm. And it, it's becoming more and more a problem because what we're finding is that the private healthcare sector is now expanding at a huge rate because people are recognizing business opportunities in the UK. And so private hospitals are being built. Um, lots of doctors and nurses and other staff are being poached from the NHS to work in these hospitals. And yet the hospitals don't provide the full gamut of services. They're still dump- well, dumping is a horrible word because it makes it sound like it's based on the individual and and it's not their fault but they are dumping work onto the NHS by not providing the full service they could do for their patients and that's not really spoken about enough in the press I don't think Mm. yeah I didn't know that did you no I had no that's crazy and it's it's such a shame that this there must be something like you know petition sounds really pathetic but like something like we can do collectively to stop that from happening or at least for the, the private sector to kind of put money into yeah. the NHS well, to compensate. Because um, we're meeting with a few other um, campaigning organisations at the moment because we're hoping to create a way of like modelling this mathematically so that, I mean, it's not going to look like a mathematical model when we show it to people, I hope, but I hope we're going to be able to create a sort of visible representation of ha- how this is happening and how much money is being spent by the NHS, essentially picking up problems that are created by private healthcare companies. And you're absolutely right. I I don't really like the nature of a public-private partnership because I think that the public healthcare system should be like robust and stand on its own. But you're right. If if the NHS is trying to kind of foot the bill for some things that are, you know, caused by the private healthcare sector, we should have a better way of making sure that the private healthcare sector is paying for that, you know. Um, it's tricky though, because on the other hand, the NHS provides free care for everyone at the point of need, and I think mm-hmm. well, well, hospitals will say, "Well, they, you know, they need they need emergency care now." Yeah, it's it's tricky, but then also it might be an incentive for the private sector to be like, "Okay, well, actually, let's just provide everything, and then we don't have to go to the NHS if if we're paying the NHS for it. Maybe we just make that available." we you know the cost the customer the patient pays us for it that maybe it'll, that will incentivize it in that way i don't know it's just so well, the problem bizarre. got and this is the crux of everything really is that the private healthcare sector are trying to create a profit that you know they're answerable to shareholders and so all of the decisions they're going to be making is to look at the bottom line and to maximize that profit and they they're going to be trying to spend the least they can on staff and resources so that they can maximize the money they make out of every operation they provide. So I mean, maybe they'd have to put up their prices. Maybe that would be the way around it. But uh, mm. yeah, it's it's complicated. It was quite interesting. You said you said customers and, right. and that, was a, that was a bit of a slip, but I guess in essence, they are customers. Yeah, in that that's kind <laughs> of how you see it. It's like yeah. commerce, really, well, it isn't is, it? It is. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. And actually, there's been a move. If you think about the way that politicians now talk about healthcare, there's a lot of focus at the moment about choice, patient choice. And a lot of the ways that they describe what patients should want, they talk about the need for a patient to choose between different NHS services. And certainly over the last 10 years, maybe more, um, 
they've said, for example, if you're going to have a baby, where would you like to give birth? You can choose one of your local hospitals. But it does sort of put the person in the seat of a kind of customer, like picking items from a shop or something. And when I speak mm. to patients, quite a lot of them are saying, well, we're not that bothered about choosing. We much prefer to just have one place. You know, you're going, that's the local place, but that it functions. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. your local <laughs> place will be fine, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because ultimately, if you're choosing that as a patient, you're probably thinking to yourself, right, which one's going to give me the exactly. best care? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes people go, it's awful, actually. Like there was a lady I was talking to a while back who needed to have, I think it was a hip replacement. And she found out she'd gone to all these places because she had all these choices and all of the choices were appalling. It was like, you know, you could, there was no good option. It was just a choice between various failing hospitals, which it's not oh, good. Oh, God. No, no. I, I want to talk to you a bit about the book, um, which I've got here. I'm going to hold it up. Uh, I know you've sort of split the chapters into, there's about four or five different chapters, you know, the promise, the betrayal, the method and the impact. What, uh, and then the solution, what uh, made you kind of set it out like that? And also just a bit about how, how you felt writing it, because I imagine it was quite an emotional thing to write. Also, it's and, it's called Critical, by the way, because yeah, for people yeah, that can't that. sit that aren't watching, <laughs> just the book. You do that every time, and I, know, I always I have to say, it's not the Bible, it's not the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Stop bringing the Bible into every conversation, Charles. <laughs> critical. Uh, yeah, it's called Critical. Um, it were, So I'll talk about why it's structured like that, first of all. So I think politicians and the media sometimes do a really good job of telling us what we should think about the NHS, telling us that it's no longer working, telling us that it doesn't need funding or the staff are being lazy or the patients are expecting too much or whatever. And I suppose I wanted to use the book as a way of bringing people back to the fact that this is not a service that politicians are supposed to be able to take on and just throw whatever funding and resources they feel like at it. And we should all just be grateful for that. They take on a service which has a constitution it's very clear what it's meant to provide for every person in this country and people pay their taxes expecting that service and they feel very, very strongly about it. And not only that, it's a key vote plank, you know, for, for people during a general election, the NHS is an absolute key issue and politicians often use it as a way of garnering votes at general elections. They make all kinds of promises under the sun and often they don't keep them. And Instead, they fail on the things that are written in that constitution that they should be providing for people. And so I wanted to use the book as a sort of bringing people back to what the service is meant to be <laughs> and illustrating how politicians have managed to pull away from it quite successfully to the point that the system is no longer functional and the public have never, ever been consulted on politicians' decisions to privatise the NHS. And yet we're in a situation now where thousands of NHS services in England alone are run by external providers, some of whom are private companies. And so the book sets out for anyone who's concerned about the situation, but doesn't know an awful lot yet, what politicians have done, how they have managed to do that, and what we need to do now to, to fight for the service. And yeah, it was really emotional writing the book, actually, because I was writing it coming out of COVID in that kind of weird, hazy time when I think a lot of people were kind of had a lot of questions about what was going on in themselves and their jobs and their lives and our society and how our politicians were behaving. 
And we probably all felt that online. If, if, if you are online, people are listening to this. Lots of questions about the behavior of politicians and how they treated all of us and their caretaking and everything. And I wrote the, I wrote the book very quickly because um, my publishers wanted it to come out fairly fast. I think they felt the need for this to go into the public domain, but that put a pressure on it as well. <laughs> so mm. it felt difficult. And as I was finishing it, I, I finished it over last winter during the winter crisis, which was extraordinary and the worst it's ever been and incredibly horrifying. And so writing those pages about the things that were being shared with me, because every doctor represents doctors. And so we were getting this just tidal wave of incredibly, incredibly upsetting information about the experiences of patients and the things that the staff were dealing with. Having to write that and distill it down in a way that kind of made sense and would hopefully have the impact it needed to have. It was really difficult actually. And I think coming into this winter, so it's October now, we've got a horrible NHS winter ahead of us. And I think any NHS campaigner probably feels this like dread in the pit of their stomach as we get into the winter time, because it is awful. We know what's going to happen. And the government have yet again had warnings about what is going to unfold in the NHS. And yet they're not paying proper attention and paying lip service to changing things. Um, the government committed this January to making an extra 5,000 hospital beds in the NHS within a two-year period. And Rishi Sunak made a huge sort of noise during the summer about how 900 of these were going to be provided by January. So they're not there yet. We're going to get 900 by next January. And it's not quick enough because by January, that's when everything's going to fall apart, right? And that's only 900 beds. It's a drop in the ocean compared to what we need. Um, the government aren't taking it seriously enough. And I predict, it's horrible to make these predictions, but I predict that once again, we'll have a crisis where there aren't enough ambulances on the road getting to people in time. And I predict that the A&E department's going to be completely overwhelmed and people aren't going to get the care they need. And I predict that more lives are going to get lost. Because last winter, up to 500 people died every single week because they couldn't access the emergency care they needed. And that's not the situation we should be having in the UK. It's just not. There's, we have too much money for that to be an acceptable state of affairs. It's, it's just appalling. Um, and I think we talk a lot about waiting lists at the moment, people sitting on a waiting list. And the way that that gets framed is wrong in the media because when you think of someone on a waiting list, if you're not experiencing yourself, you think of someone passively waiting for something, like waiting at a bus stop, and it's a bit inconvenient, but it's fine. You'll still get to your destination. It, you just might be a bit late, but that's not the way it is for a lot of people on waiting lists. It's a situation where people are maybe in pain or they've got other symptoms. They might have increasing medication requirements. They might become more debilitated over time because some symptoms do just get worse, you know, the longer you wait. And so throughout the year, we get these kind of updates of the waiting lists increasing, but they don't make it real for people. It doesn't really explain the situation. And then the the crisis will hit in the winter and that's not sitting on a waiting list. That's people, and I don't mean to horrify anybody, I'm sorry, because I know this can be really emotive, but last winter that was people calling for an ambulance and the ambulance never came and the person died. You know, that was people calling because they've fallen potentially 
broken their hip and the ambulance never turns up. And three days later, they hobble to their GP surgery in agony because they just have nowhere else to go. You know, it's it's awful, awful things happening to people. And I think the, some of the people who are in charge of this country who dictate the way that things are described in the media or they, you know, they're working as our politicians, some of those people are so privileged that they themselves wouldn't be touched by this. You know, there's this this out of touch attitude because it's ordinary, normal people who who are going to be affected by this, and they don't have much of a voice. Um, and I I'm just worried about it. You know, I am worried. So sorry, that was extremely long winded. I suppose I feel like the more people can understand why this is all happening, then the more people will know where to direct their frustration because people are frustrated and they need answers. And I, I suppose I've tried to provide some of those answers for people or at least more questions so that they're asking questions yeah. about the situation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a fantastic book and, it, and I think you're right. I think it's going to give a lot of people um, answers and like you say, more questions about what's going on and, and maybe a bit of a call to arms in, to a certain extent. I was wanting to change the subject slightly towards like obviously your platform and what you do online to contribute to these this campaigning and also the kind of effect of that because I know that you do sometimes get trolling and stuff and I you know we talked about mental health earlier and, and actually when you stick your neck above the power pit on these kind of subjects inevitably there is going to be a backlash to it I was just wondering how you co kind of cope with that stuff yeah it's really hard and Giles I know that you've like have experienced it yourself and also you provide a lot of support to other people who are who are going through this and it's it's I think what's difficult when you are being trolled whether it's me or somebody else is that it's not personal in the sense that there are trolls everywhere and they're going after anyone who sticks their head above the parapet but in the moment when it's happening it feels incredibly personal that they make yeah. it personal um and I think one of the things that's most difficult about this and I think Giles you're such a support to so many people with this is that quite often it's people who are really kind and a little bit vulnerable who are putting themselves out there to speak up about something and you provide a really good target for someone who's a troll because you care it doesn't mm -hmm. tend to be people who are really sort of brusque and have thick skins who who do this sort of work or activism in their spare time whatever it is because they they're naturally an empathetic type of a person that, that's certainly my experience of it. And so I know lots of other campaigners who, similar to me, have periods where it's all great and it doesn't touch you and you just sort of brush it off. But at the times often when you're trying to do the most good, the speaking out the most, and you're most into it and you're really involved and it's very, it's all of the things, it's incredibly charged. Those are the moments where if you get trolled, it can absolutely send you off a cliff and make you just mm. want to run and hide in a hole. And that's definitely happened to me on a number of occasions. Um, and Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, it's definitely deteriorated, I think, over the last year or so. So um, it, it can be hard to shut those things out. I guess the other thing is that if you're interested in what other people think, because you're trying to find out the public opinion on a particular issue it's very difficult online because the easiest thing you can do when you're getting trolled is to shut other people out and just ignore the noise 
But if you're a campaigner, if you shut out the noise, you're not being a good campaigner. You're just not. Mm. Because being a good campaigner involves listening a lot more than it involves talking. And so what I've found in the past is that I'll be sort of diligently scrolling through the comments and absorbing just like, oh, all this horrible stuff. And then it's tricky. Um, the best way that I know to deal with it is to have a really strong team. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've surrounded myself with people who have a different personality type to me. We're all different, right? Having people who are quite strong and maybe a little bit less sensitive than I am has been really, really helpful. And also having a few people that you trust who you can tell if you're feeling mm. shaky or you're not feeling your best. That's been really important to me. And I've been really lucky to be around people like that. And also just being kind to yourself. Like I know that sounds such a basic thing. I was tweeting about that yesterday, actually. I think people often aren't very kind to themselves. They might be kind to other people, but they might not show that same kindness to themselves. They might not give themselves a break or let themselves go for a walk if they're feeling a bit wobbly or, you know, have a cup of tea that they'll tell themselves that they're not good enough or they're not enough or that they're too sensitive or that they're too whatever. Almost mirroring what the trolls are saying to them. Um, and you, you can't do good campaigning work if if you're not feeling robust. And the only way you're going to feel robust is if you look after yourself as well. So, I mean, but then I can say that till the cows come home. When it happens, it's not always easy to do any of those things, is it? It's hard. Like in dials, I think you're very good at identifying when someone might be feeling a bit wobbly. I've had a number of messages from you over the years, you know, like I'm sure you do it with loads of people because you can probably tell. I know that you're extremely empathetic. You're probably picking up like that person's not quite right today i'm going to send them a message it's really kind um it can be really, oh, well, it's important yeah, yeah it's important to me I, I, and yeah and, and i i don't yeah I've, uh, there's a few people have said oh you've messaged me today i, I was feeling really shit and actually that's thank you very much and I, I don't know what it, it some weird sixth sense that i haven't really realized but yeah <laughs> yeah you did it to me today actually yeah yeah and i can always pick up so um I'm not expecting you to be able to give us all the solutions to what's going on, but briefly, <laughs> is, is there something, what what do you see as a best route at this stage for um, making the NHS a better thing? Yeah. And so over the last few decades, there have been a few NHS reforms and each of the reforms has brought more privatisation or kind of a corporatization, which is the sort of way that the organisation is structured, which might not directly involve a private company, but kind of the way it's managed is more corporate in its structure. That's what the reforms have achieved. And it has caused the NHS as a system to get fragmented into lots of little units instead of being one joined up system where all of the parts are talking to one another. Sometimes with privatisation, it's spoken about as if it only counts if someone is generating a profit. And that's not really true. It's more about the entire system getting broken down into its component parts and not interacting with one another. And then eventually the private companies come in once they can kind of buy something or take on a service and draw a profit out. And so what we've been finding 
is that over a really long time, the NHS has become isolated into tiny bits. And what needs to happen is the service needs to be joined up again. All of the private companies need to be removed. And only once that's happened, can we hope to build the system with all the links between it that it needs in order to run efficiently. And the reason that needs to happen is, first of all, because services need to talk to one another. A lot of people work within the NHS for their entire careers. And something that often gets lost is the richness of knowledge you can gain if you work in an area with your patients for a really long time. And the connectivity between different services and that shared knowledge builds how strong a healthcare system you can run. All of that is lost once it becomes fragmented and then sold off or private companies come in. And so what we need is to be celebrating a robustness of a structure where we have people working in joined up systems for a long time. And once that has been joined up again and run in the public system, it's also going to enable knowledge sharing across the system. Because if you privatize bits, let's imagine a tech company comes on and provides a computer system for a part of an NHS service. If they develop a piece of software, they own the software, they own the knowledge. And even if they're hiring NHS staff, the NHS staff are working for a private company. If the private company goes bust or decides not to run that NHS contract anymore, they take their knowledge and they take it out of the NHS. If you have an NHS IT system, which has been funded by the public and the knowledge stays in the NHS and the knowledge can be shared across other NHS systems, then that money that's gone into the IT system permeates the service and strengthens the entire service. So it's about connecting and collaborating and helping the entire system to improve. There's this absolute false narrative from politicians about how competition drives results. It doesn't in healthcare. Mm. Collaboration drives results. Sharing knowledge and building things together drives results. And then finally, I guess, in order to then maximize how this joined up system would work together, we need to ensure that all of the public money that comes through taxes is funneled into the public service and that none of that gets sieved off into private shareholders' pockets. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you're running a private company, you take in money from the NHS to run a public service and you're hoping that some proportion of that money is going to then go into your shareholders' pockets. Whereas if you're an NHS service running an NHS service, no percentage of that money is going into a shareholder's pockets. It's all getting reinvested into the service through staff or, you know, provision of resources. And so I believe, it's a very important to say it, we're saying this, I believe that the service needs to be entirely renationalized. We need to eliminate private companies from the NHS. Um, and it, the way to do that is to start talking to one another and connecting with one another and building these huge campaigns. I think we have only just achieved the tip of the iceberg in terms of con connecting people who care about the NHS. Um, we need to be talking to people in really clear terms about what needs to happen. And we need to be doing it across the political divide because at the moment we are reaching people who are knowledgeable about this situation. A lot of them are left-wing. A lot of them have a lot of information at their fingertips already that they've absorbed from other places over the last few years. 
if you do a survey of just the population about what they think about the NHS, regardless of who they vote for, most people want the NHS to survive. And so we've got to find way of, ways of communicating with your traditional Tory voter to talk to them about what it is they do value and how much they understand about what politicians are really doing to the service. And I think it's only when we're able to bridge that gap and talk to everybody that we're going to achieve the change we need to. So it's big job. <laughs> big job yeah yeah what could you um give any advice for for the listeners and you know i'm not going to cast any aspersions on who the listeners are or who (laughs) they vote for but for the regular person is there anything tangible that we can be doing to make a difference yeah i mean the organization that i run which is called every doctor has lots of members and as a group we come together and organize things we sign petitions we run campaigns we speak up about things we're hoping to do a lot more in petitioning local mps about what's happening in their areas so that people can be campaigning against things that are meaningful to them in their lives you know the healthcare services that they know in their area and so if anybody wanted to come, become involved in that in a small way or a larger way, if they went to our website, which is www.everydoctor.org.uk, um, we'd love you to join. Um, we're gaining a lot of members at the moment, which is fantastic. Um, there's also a fantastic, another book, not my book. <laughs> there's another book that I would really recommend if you're interested in privatization, you want to understand it in a kind of clear way. It's called How to Privatise the NHS in 10 Easy Steps. And it's by someone called Yusuf Al-Gingahi, and he's an NHS GP, and he's set it out. It's a very slim book, so it's quite easy to read it in a couple of hours. And doing that will really arm you with, you know, a real starter on what's going on. Um, Mm. But just paying attention. And finally, I would say, please don't absorb this nonsense about the NHS strikes you're reading in the press. The staff are working incredibly hard. Um, a major reason why they're striking is because they're terrified about what's happening to the service. They want it to be better for patients. They're understaffed, right? So please don't absorb this rhetoric that NHS staff are lazy and they don't care about anybody. The, the absolute opposite is true. If they didn't care, they would have left by now. They could be paid mm-hmm. times as much in a different country. They care a great deal, which is why they're there standing on a picket line. Mm, yeah. So true, so true and so important as well. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time today. It's um, It's been fascinating to hear your, your own story and then obviously everything you've been doing to campaign to help support the NHS. And um, yeah, everyone go out and buy your book, Critical and... Yeah, thank you so much. Thank for your time. you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. thank you. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>